If you guys have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 16. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the life of Abram, a man whom Jews, Muslims, and Christians all alike look back to as one of the great fathers of our faith. If you were here a few weeks ago, Jeff, when he was preaching on Genesis chapter 12, he encouraged us to use our holy imaginations when we approach the scriptures. In other words, to, to pretend like we didn't know the end of the story. What must it have felt like to be Abram being called out, not knowing where God was calling him to go? What must it have been like to have been those first Israelites hearing these stories from Moses in Sinai? And I bring this back up tonight because this is one of the most helpful frameworks we have in learning how to interpret the Bible. These people didn't know the end of the story. They didn't know where God was going. Now, with that kind of picture in mind, let's start in Genesis 16, verse 1. And listen closely, for these are God's own words. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Laheroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abraham, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are here to hear from you tonight. 
because your name and your renown are the desire of our hearts. Together we say, like Simon Peter, Lord, where else would we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word abides forever. So we pray tonight that by your grace and your mercy, you would overcome the frailties and the failings of this speaker and that you would speak clearly and pointedly to every person in this room that you have made in your own image, that they would know that you hear them, that you see them, and that you love them. Pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now again, I want you to picture yourself encamped in this wilderness. You and everyone you know, you've just escaped horrific affliction, oppression, and slavery in Egypt. Generations of your people have been born in Egypt as captives, and they know nothing different. But this guy named Moses, he came out of nowhere. He's claiming to be a prophet of God. He's led your people through these unbelievable plagues of judgment, and you have just walked through a sea on dry land and watched God crush your enemies. Then Moses, he leads you out from the Red Sea and they go into the wilderness of Shur. They spend three days there. This is in Exodus 15, and they find no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. And therefore, using all of the powers of creativity that they had at the time, they named it Merah, which means bitter. And the people grumbled. That was a terrible joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And I want you to imagine this being your people. What must it have been like for these people to have heard Moses right in Genesis 12? that God made these promises to Abram to make him into a great nation and that through him, all the nations of the earth were gonna be blessed. What must they have thought while they walked through that wilderness of sure, hearing in Genesis 13 that Lot trusted what his eyes could see, but Abram walked by faith and not by sight. What encouragement must it have been to them, as Joel pointed out in Genesis 15, that it's not as though Abram had doubt-free, perfect faith, but that the greatness of his faith was actually demonstrated, that he took his doubts and his questions to God. Now, if these last two weeks of sermons have highlighted Abram as this great hero of the, of the faith, we can kind of say it's easy in one sense. It's easy to believe in God's power and promises when you see him part a Red Sea and you see your enemies crushed. It's easy to believe God's power and his promises when he shows up as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. It's easy to trust God when you land that job, when you make that grade, when you get into that school, when all of your hard efforts pay off. But what about when you're wandering in the wilderness of sure and there's no water? What about when it seems like your marriage is falling apart? What about when all of your hard efforts turn to sand or the diagnosis comes back and it's MS or it's cancer? What if you clearly and unmistakably heard the voice of God 
And then a decade goes by of silence and unfulfilled promises. Imagine the pain of those questions, because that's the situation that we find ourselves in when we get to Genesis 16. Abram, he's now 86 years old. Sarai, she's 77. And if Genesis 15 is a picture of a man who sees by faith, who walks by faith and not by sight, 10 years later, when we get to this story in Genesis 16, we see a man whose eyes of faith are failing. Let's take a look back at our passage to see what it would have meant to those people in ancient Israel and what it says to us today. Verse one, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And before we go any further into the story, I want to say a thank you to Paige Bierman, our ministry coordinator, for highlighting this to me. But I want you kind of for the rest of our time walking through the book of Genesis, when you hear the word Egypt, I want that to perk something up in your mind. Because Moses, he repeatedly points to Egypt to represent self-reliance. Because where did Abram go in Genesis 12 when he heard the promise of God, but then famine showed up in the promised land? He goes to Egypt. While they're in Egypt, he tells his wife to lie so that they can get by and hide, pretending that she is just his sister. Now, childless Sarai is turning again to her Egyptian servant to accomplish what she cannot. Whenever Egypt comes up, it's seen as the antithesis of walking by faith and not by sight. Even Moses's original audience, even though they had seen God perform these unbelievable miracles, when they are hungry, they start to grumble in the wilderness saying, shouldn't we just go back to Egypt? I mean, I know that we were slaves there, but at least there was food. Verse two, and Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now I'm going to ask a very important question. And this question is going to set the tone for the rest of this sermon. So how you answer it is incredibly important. Is Sarai wrong? Has the Lord prevented her from having children? Absolutely. God has prevented Sarai from having children. Now, alongside this truth that God is in control, that God is absolutely sovereign over all things that happens in his creation, she has smuggled in a really dark and sinister conclusion. She believes that God's in control, right? She believes even that God has made these promises to her husband. But underneath that, she has concluded that therefore, maybe this God isn't for me, or at least he's not good to me, or maybe I don't understand him. You know, for a number of years, my wife, Erin, and I, we planned on moving into the mission field. Uh, and four years ago, we had actually purchased plane tickets to meet our would-be team to help start a college ministry in Sheffield, England. And my uh, heart, 
as somebody who has been in ministry for over a decade, but has always kind of wrestled with the sense of calling, this was about as clear as I had ever felt about something that I thought we were supposed to do. My heart was all the way in. And I remember the feeling that hit me when I got a phone call from our team leader saying, we just met with the elders at this church and it is nothing against you guys, but the elders came together and they said, they don't wanna have more Americans on staff this team than they do Brits. And there's six Brits on this team and you guys were the seventh and eighth people to sign up. We felt like the only fair thing to do was to say, you guys can't come. And I was crushed for months. Like we had prayed and prayed and we had wrestled through what we thought the Lord was supposed to, uh, was calling us to do. It's like, God, why don't you want us to go tell people how great you are where there's not a lot of people telling people how great you are? Maybe you've cried out to God in a similar situation, asking God for the anxiety to lift or like we just did praying for people that you love to come to faith and God hasn't answered. Maybe you've waited for God to answer some of your, your questions or to alleviate some of the problems in your kids' lives. Or maybe you've been waiting for a child. We've had a number of friends struggle with infertility and it's just brutal, right? It is absolutely brutal. Sitting with people, crying out to God, asking, I don't understand why God wouldn't give us a child. I know that we're not perfect, but certainly we would be better parents than a lot of people who have kids out there. We would take care of them. We would provide for them. We would tell them about Jesus. Why wouldn't God want that? And each month brings another wave of sorrow, another round of questions, and another set of despondent, sometimes angry prayers, right? And as awful as infertility is today, and it is awful, it can be difficult for us to wrap our minds around just how devastating infertility was in ancient times. Because while we live in a day and age where most of us have been taught to find our sense of meaning and purpose by looking within, in the ancient world, your family was everything. All of your hopes and your dreams were tied to your family's success and honor. Therefore, a woman's worth was directly tied to bearing children. So I pulled this from one of the earliest uh, Vedic texts from ancient India. A woe is the woman who does not carry out the provided role of a mother. In ancient India, women who could not get pregnant were seen as being possessed by the goddess of the underworld. Likewise, in ancient Rome, infertility was grounds for divorce. This is the world that Sarai is growing up in. She couldn't give herself with serving at Habitat for Humanity. She couldn't fill up her time with a hobby or travel. She couldn't give herself to a career. Family was everything and she couldn't have family. So you can imagine her sorrowful, despondent and sometimes angry prayers, right? God, why wouldn't you do this? I mean, I know that you're in control, but do you hear me? Do you see me? Do you even love me? Do you notice this? Because because I did not notice this until studying this passage over this last week, that as we've read through these last few chapters of Genesis, Sarai never actually personally heard the voice of God. Listen to this. Genesis 12, 1 reads, God said to Abram, 
15.1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. In fact, in all of his promises, God had never even specifically mentioned Sarai by name, saying only to Abram, quote, your very own son shall be your heir. And 10 years have gone by. Abram and Sarai certainly weren't getting any younger. You remember back in Genesis 13, when Lot was making his decision about where to live, the text says that he lifted up his eyes and he saw the well-watered Jordan Valley. But Abram looked at the land with the Lord and that made all the difference. Well, in Genesis 16, Sarai lifted her eyes and she saw the barren valley before her. And it's telling that Genesis 16 does not say Sarai cried out to God asking, why have you not given me children? Or that Abram heard his wife cry out to the Lord and listened for God to reply. Because this decade of waiting seems to have crumbled their faiths. And instead of turning to God with their doubts, what this passage says is, and Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, Sarai's response makes a lot of sense to us, right? How long could she reasonably be expected to wait for God to come through on this? How could God not expect their faiths to falter during a decade of unfulfilled promises and longings? Aaron and I did college ministry for 10 years. And I cannot tell you the number of people who seem to be walking faithfully with God in college, but then slowly lost sight of God's promises and only saw what they've perceived as the barren valley of their singleness in front of them. Wondered if God truly had their best in mind. And when a guy or girl came along who cared for them, but didn't necessarily or only sort of kind of loved Jesus, their minds were made up. From where I can see, this valley looks well watered. And the valley where all of these promises are supposed to lie has only held barrenness. And if the words of, of this passage sound familiar to you, they should, because as Moses is bringing back to mind what he wrote earlier in Genesis three seventeen, where God said to Abram, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. You see, Sarai is Eve. She too is deceived into thinking that God is a withholding God. Abram, like Adam, doesn't challenge the faulty assumptions of his wife, but passively heeds her voice instead of God's words. And as Eve gave Adam the fruit, so Sarai gives Hagar to Abram. Now, according to the Code of Hammurabi and a lot of old ancient texts, what Sarai suggested, though it's an obvious contradiction to what God had, uh, had laid out as the one flesh ideal, this was, this was common in the ancient world. If a wife wasn't able to bear children, she could give one of her maidservants to her husband 
and the children born by the handmaid could be counted as the barren wife's own. I don't know if any of you guys have seen or read Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, but this is just as horrifying as it sounds. Hagar has no choice in the matter whatsoever. She is a pawn in this game. And Abram, she, he feels the pressure of his wife's request. And he doesn't listen for the voice of the Lord, but he passively attempts to pacify his wife. And Sarai is obviously in deep sorrow, as any husband would be hearing the sorrow of his wife in a situation like this. This is why what Matthew Henry wrote in his commentary on this passage is so true. He wrote, it's the policy of Satan to tempt us by our nearest and dearest relations. For temptation is most dangerous when it is sent by hand that is least suspected. And just a quick note here, because I I don't want to pass over this. This passage, it doesn't directly comment on how God hates slavery, polygamy, and abuse, but he does. And the narrator really wants you to see that. Throughout the Bible, these things are shown as evil. And in every story where the children of God participate in them, they end in absolute sorrow and disaster. Let's continue. Verse four. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked, with me on, uh, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. When Hagar conceived, Sarai seemed slight in her eyes and she began to despise her. And Sarai saw Hagar's contempt and she was overcome with envy and bitterness. Remember, Sarai had said, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And all of a sudden she is proven absolutely right. After all, Abram obviously could still have kids. For Sarai, this had to be literally the worst feeling imaginable. All of these years, it was just her. In a society where a woman's value was determined by whether or not she could bear children, she now bore the shame of being the one who had kept Abram childless. And when Sarai says, may the wrong done to me be on you, The word that she uses there for wrong, it's only been used once earlier in Genesis 6, when God says he determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth was filled with violence. Sarai is saying, you have done violence to me, Abram. And from the way she's talking here, you would assume that all of this was Abram's idea, right? But only because Sarai is so hurt that she has hidden the truth from herself like we are all so prone to do. Like Eve in the garden, Sarai shifts the blame and deflects her own responsibility. Now, Abram and Sarai are both totally responsible, but Sarai here, she's refusing to admit the part that she's played. And when we've been wronged, when we're hurt, don't we all tend to magnify other people's faults? Don't we all tend to see the great wrongs that they have done while minimizing our own. 
This is why it's so incredibly important to have people in your life who are unafraid to tell you the things that you don't wanna hear. Because if you don't have somebody like that in your life, you ought to be very afraid of the things that you don't see. Because don't miss the horrifying irony of what's happening here. This is a slave owner who forced her slave into a sexual relationship with her husband and plans on taking that child away from that woman as her own, speaking up and claiming to be the victim of violence and injustice. And Abram, instead of confessing his own sin and confronting the sin in his wife, he takes the most cowardly way out imaginable. He's just seeking to appease his wife as quickly and as easily as he possibly can. See, your servant is in your hands. Do whatever you see fit. Abram saw that Sarai was mad. And so he chose not to see Sarai's plight. Like Adam before him, Abram shifted the blame right back to his wife. He had to have seen Sarai inflicting harm on Hagar, who was pregnant, remember, with his child. And as far as he knew, pregnant with the promised child. And this man who was supposed to be a blessing to all of the families of the earth, instead willfully is working against the good of this poor Egyptian slave girl. Imagine how that must have rung in the ears of those newly freed from affliction and slavery, Israelites wandering away from Egypt. And Hagar, choosing between the horror of abuse and neglect versus probable death on a solitary journey back to Egypt, flees. She was as vulnerable as any person could possibly be. She was alone. She was a pregnant runaway slave. Verse seven, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And before we go any further, I do want to address this one more time. Why would God tell Hagar to go back to somebody who was mistreating her so terribly? Most importantly, I need you to hear me say that you need to know that this is not a one-for-one -one interpretation on anybody's life. This does not mean that if you are suffering abuse that God is calling you to stay. You should call the authorities immediately, right? God is promising Hagar directly and specifically that he is going to take care of her. And part of taking care of her means that she has to trust God even when it doesn't make any sense to her. Verse eight. Oh, we just read that. We'll skip on through. So poor Hagar, right? She has never been first in anyone's life. She is given away as a slave by Pharaoh. She was given away as a wife. She was given up by the father of her child. This woman had been dealt about as bitter a hand as anyone could possibly be dealt, but no eye had pitied her, right? 
But here, at her absolutely most helpless and hopeless, it's then that the angel of the Lord, literally this, this messenger of God, met her at a well in the wilderness on the way to Shur, the same place where the Israelites would only find bitter water generations later. And this had to be utterly shocking to Hagar, right? Because the gods that she would have grown up with in Egypt, they would have never noticed her. Not even Sarai, remember, had heard God's own voice. But here in the wilderness, all alone, the God of Abram shows up and meets this poor, helpless, hopeless woman, giving her the same direct care and attention that Abram himself had received. And this is incredibly remarkable because this is the only known instance in all of ancient Near Eastern literature where God addresses a woman by name. And think about this. This is made all the more remarkable by the fact that, that Hagar, she isn't quote unquote important, right? She wasn't a queen. She wasn't a princess. She was an unwanted runaway slave. And the God who made everything seeks her out. You see, while God had made promises to Abram, God had never been exclusively committed to Abram. He was committed to blessing the world through Abram. And since Abram and Sarai had been such lousy ambassadors of God's on his behalf, God shows up to this poor, helpless, hopeless woman saying, though they don't see you, I see you. Though they don't hear you, I hear you. And they, though they don't love you, I love you. Hagar said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Notice Hagar doesn't respond here. How could she? What would she say? Why would she trust the God of Abram at this point? So the angel of the Lord continues. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Now think about that last phrase there for a second, because as far as we know from this story, Hagar hasn't even prayed. So this isn't God answering her prayers. This is God looking out into the world and seeing the affliction of the marginalized like he always does and being moved with pity. You see, the God of the Bible, he is always moving towards those who are on the outside, the brokenhearted, the poor, the barren, the widow, the orphan, the oppressed. And the angel of the Lord seeks out Hagar when she must have thought that all was lost, when she had no hope for the future, when she had no one to turn to. He says to her, the Lord has listened to your affliction. So name your son Ishmael. God hears because I do. I always do. 
even when you are at your most helpless and hopeless, even when you are convinced that I'm not there or if I'm there, I'm not for you, even when you are most sure that you have been abandoned, when your sorrow is the deepest, when you are most sure that I don't hear, that I don't see, and that I don't love, hallelujah, you are not alone. I am with you and I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Your God searches you and he knows you. He hems you in behind and before. He knows when you sit down. He knows when you rise up. He knows all of your thoughts from afar. And there's nowhere that you can go from his spirit. Hagar's eyes in this moment, they're opened to the God whose eyes have always been open on her. So she responds in utter amazement. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Who am I that the God of seeing has seen me and that I've seen the one who sees after me? And this is unbelievably important. Hagar's hope is not that her situation is somehow going to get better or that with enough hard work, she can turn this thing around with Abram and Sarai. In fact, Hagar goes back and this story doesn't work out happily ever after. Abram and Sarai, they seem like they believe her. They name the kid Ishmael. But in Genesis 21, she's sent off anyway. Her hope is not in her circumstances. Her hope is in the God who sees her. That she is known, that she is heard, and that she is loved by God himself. That God himself has gone out of his way to become personal to her. So personal, in fact, that Hagar is the only person in the Old Testament who gets to give a name to God. Elroy, the God who sees she knows him. She knows that she's seen, that she's heard, and that she's loved. And that's the greatest good in the universe. But what could it possibly mean that Hagar has seen God? Isn't it true that no one can see God and live? And aren't we told in this passage that, that Hagar saw the angel of the Lord? So why does she say that she has seen God? Now, throughout the Old Testament, this mysterious angel of the Lord character shows up again and again. And one thing is very clear. He is not like any other angel. There's always this question that comes up when he shows up. Yes, he's distinct from Yahweh, but he also somehow seems like Yahweh. Even when he's talking to Hagar in this story, he says, the Lord has listened to your affliction. But then he also says, I will greatly multiply your offspring. And then Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You see, this great God of the Bible is unapproachably holy. And yet sometimes in the Old Testament, this God was made visible. The angel of the Lord is this royal glory of God put on display to humanity, showing up to stop Abram from slaughtering his other son, Isaac, in Genesis 22, wrestling with Jacob, showing up and speaking through that burning bush to Moses, 
speaking with the authority of God himself. This is why Hagar can rejoice that she has seen him who sees after her. And thousands of years later, there's one who's going to come who was with God, distinct from the Father, and yet who is also God, speaking with the same royal authority of God himself. And while this angel of the Lord appeared like a human, this one would be God taking on human flesh itself to live amongst us. That God himself as a man, he would come again. He would again approach an outcast woman by a well all alone. And though she wasn't an Israelite, though she wasn't one of the promised people of God, though she too had no true husband, love itself would come after her to a poor helpless, hopeless woman saying, no, no one hears you. I hear you. Though no one seems to see you, I see you. And though no one has shown you the love that you deserve and that you crave, I love you. Let me give you the water that does not lead to bitterness, but leads to eternal life. My friends, Jesus Christ is the well that will not run dry. You may look out in your life in various seasons and see the circumstances and think that the entire world before you is a wilderness where there is no water. You may think that your future is not full of promises, but only barrenness. You may have been cast off by those who should have seen you and heard you and loved you. You may feel like you have nothing and no one to depend upon, but your God hears, your God sees, And your God will never leave and he will never forsake. As Charles Spurgeon said, he in whom is all fatherhood, all friendship and all kindness still stands near you watching for your good. So come and drink at this well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story painful and awful though it is. And we thank you that your promises did not depend upon Sarai and Abram's obedience, just as it doesn't depend upon ours. God, you're just not like any other God because all the other gods of this world are gods of works, but you're a God of grace as we see over and over and over again. And we thank you that you always hear us, you always see us, and you always love us. Lord, I pray that you would teach each and every one of us, not to trust in our circumstances or to trust in our abilities, to teach us instead to trust in you with all of our hearts and to lean not on our own understandings. I pray that you would teach us in all of our ways to acknowledge you because then you'll make straight our paths and give us the grace to trust you in all these things we pray. Amen.